let me say this very simply. History began in ancient Samaria roughly 5,000 years ago. This does not mean the human race began, right? This does not mean past began. It just means the written word that we can understand today began 5,000 years ago, more or less. Okay? That doesn't make Sumeria the most important place. It does not mean that only ancient Sumerians knew how to read and write. But it does mean that their writings survive to the present and have been translated. Next year, if we're lucky, some other new ancient script will either be translated or discovered. Okay? The Sumerians tell us that they are writing to other peoples. So we know they're not alone. Now, some of my students in the past find this very difficult to deal with, especially if they come from a certain religious tradition. For them, the oldest writing must be the Bible. Fine, but the oldest remnants of the Bible that survive are about half as old as this. Half as old as this. They go, about, they go back 2,500 years. They talk about ancient times, but for all intents and purposes, they look like they were written in 500 BC, which is really long ago, but not as old as Sumerian. Okay, I'm not saying the Bible isn't old, and maybe there are other versions of the Bible that will be found that date further back. Do not think people are not looking for it. Of course they are. But the fact that so much money and time has been spent on looking for it and nothing has been discovered should also tell you something. So my professional opinion, what we understand as the Bible did come into existence about 2,500 years ago. I'm saying this as someone who goes to church, who like believes in God, sings in the choir on Sundays, I don't think this is a book that survived from the creation of the planet. So I just want to make that clear to you. History as we understand it began 2,500 years before the Bible as we understand it was written. So if we go back 5,000 years ago, here's a thing you may not have realized. Horses were a really big deal because they had only very recently been domesticated. Same with chariots, the idea of, of you know, putting spoked wheels on a little wagon and attaching that to a horse, that was sort of like the breaking news of the time. Donkeys are older, the wheel is older, but donkeys are really not that powerful and not very fast, and the wheels they had before were heavy and slow, and no one was preferring to go by donkey. If you're in a hurry, you just walk or run. With the domestication of the horse, well, now the top speed of a human being is like 30 miles an hour, or whatever it is they're doing on their horse. That is a major civilizational change that we cannot appreciate because history is younger than the horse. We don't have history from the days before horses. Think about that for a moment. Right? We don't have history from the days before horses. We have history that starts around the same time as the horse is domesticated. There are no states, there are no countries, there are no capitals. Right? These things that we understand in our world today, they don't exist. We, there are things that we will call empire, but that's just us being dumb. Okay? Like, the first time an empire exists in the sense that it's called empire is the Romans. And that's only, let's say, 2,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago, every city is basically in control of itself. Some cities 
might control other cities by sort of extracting resources, charging taxes, killing their leaders. But this is not, do not confuse this with a state, right? If, if Washington DC wants Richmond to do something, they don't actually have to send the army to conquer it first. We have a state. That is a thing that does not really exist before the Romans. Now here's another huge one. There is no evidence of monotheistic religions. Monotheistic meaning one God. There's infinite evidence of religion. Religion is a thing. People worship gods. Gods, plural. Though in most of these religions, there is one creator God, and then a, a sort of a theater full of lesser gods. When the Hebrews first arrive on the scene, they also appear to be polytheistic. Again, I'm going to say that again, right? If you think, well, what about the Bible? Sure, you should go back and read it again, or better yet, get a study Bible that helps you translate the Hebrew. In the oldest books of the Bible, God is always spoken of in the plural. This is really easy for you to go and check, right? The name of God tends to be Elohim, which is plural of El. El is God, one God. Elohim, the gods. The gods created the earth. We're going to talk more about this next week as well. I'm not here to say like religion is all a sham or it's all a bunch of mythology. I'm just letting you know, at this time, there is no evidence of a monotheistic religion. History begins in the middle of a rich tradition. What I mean is, the first people that we have evidence of writing history do not think they are the first. They are talking about the past that they are also reading, that past does not survive to us. Okay, so the, our oldest texts, those people do not think, here I am, I'm the first person to write stuff down. Man, that's amazing. No. Some of the oldest people we read about, we would call them archeologists today. They talk about how much they love to study the ancient past and walk around ruins and think about who came before. So history is, again, it seems very accidental when it begins. The largest city in the world at the time was called Uruk. Depending on who you believe, this appears in the Bible as Erech. There's debate whether this is the same city or not. This is where the word Iraq comes from, right? The name of the country, Iraq, stretches back and back and back and back. But at this time, it is a single city. Now the country of Iraq you know, contains hundreds of cities. Again, it's Erech in the Bible, if you want to check your Genesis. Our best guess is somewhere between 45,000 and 90,000 people are living in it at its height. And it is far and away the largest city in the world, as far as we can tell. If, you, if it helps to think about this, if you're familiar with Roanoke, kind of the big city nearby, it's about the size of Roanoke, maybe a little smaller. Think of it in your mind. What if Roanoke were the largest city on the planet? It's a good sized town. If it were the largest city on the planet, it would really change your understanding of what a city is and what it can be. Okay. Question number one. I wrote these down so I wouldn't forget them. What is one thing that you know, one thing you think you know, about the most ancient time? Doesn't have to be true or false, just a thing that you know, that you think you've heard about. If someone said, what's the very first thing that happened in history, what would you say?
Anybody want to share what they wrote? Put you on the spot. It's okay if you just wrote the largest thing in the world was Uruk because I just learned this thing. But does anybody have write a thing that I didn't just say? Yeah. So, sorry, this is the way I, I'm going to deny it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, Mason, you also had your ear throw in your hand up, maybe? Or are you going to just scratch your ear? Uh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, let's go all the way back, right? Yeah, all, all the way back. Okay, just, I want you to think about this, because now I want to compare, like, the, this part of the world between today and 3,000 BC, or 5,000 years ago. So, this part of the world today, you can think of it as North Africa, the Mediterranean. People will use the word Mesopotamia, but Mesopotamia is a very, very small part of this. Meso means between. Pota is river. Mesopotamia is between the rivers. These rivers right here. So Mesopotamia really only means this, I guess. But it's one of those words that we force kids to learn and maybe they forget. So these are the names of some countries in this area, right? You can kind of see Europe and up top there, Africa down below. 3000 BC, these are the places that are written about in the oldest history. It does not mean that no one is here. Sure, there are people there. We have archeological evidence. There are people, there are towns. But they're not recorded in history. What are the names of these people? What do they call their towns? We don't know. We go far enough back, the only writing we have is in Uruk. And the people in Uruk know about this country. They call it Elam. They know about this country. They know about this country. And I say country, but let's call it a city, right? In Uruk, they're not clear on what Egypt is. The pyramids don't exist yet, okay? Now, here are some places that you may also know about from your, I don't know, just understanding the ancient world. Like there was a city called Troy, right? These places don't exist yet in 3000 BCE, the ones in red. Other things that are not yet around. The pyramids. The vast majority of the Egyptian pyramids were built in a one to 200 year span. That always blows my mind. We think of ancient Egypt as this thing that, well, yeah, they're around for thousands of years. Yes, they are. And they build lots of pyramids. Yes, they do. But not the whole time, right? The vast majority of the existence of ancient Egypt has nothing to do with pyramids. It's part of the mystery. Like, why are they building them? And why do they stop? Now, there are a few pyramids that are created after. They're much smaller and in much worse condition. But all the big ones you can think of, let's say that the 50 biggest monuments of ancient Egypt are all built in about a 150 year period. Stonehenge does not exist yet. Babylon, the city of Babylon, kind of a big deal in the Bible, does not exist yet. Jerusalem, yeah, kind of a big deal, does not exist yet. Rome, Constantinople, Thebes, Carthage. These are all kind of major players in the ancient world, especially of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There's nothing there yet. These towns don't exist. The ancestors of these people are scattered who knows where. So the ancient time of history also means that there are there just fewer people. The, the hardest thing, I think, for a modern citizen of the world to understand about the ancient past is how different the world was 
when the global population was under 10 million people. Now, of course, these cultural areas, part of the reason we think of them as important is because they have very large population growth. But as these cities grow, the people leave. This idea that everyone wants to live in cities, that is an extremely modern idea. Cities are dangerous places where disease runs rampant. Before the invention of the modern sewer system, very few people want to live in a city. And so most of history is cities producing lots of people who then leave. I'll say that again. Most of human history a city is like a gigantic, filthy breeding ground, producing lots of people who the first chance they get, they leave. That is the opposite of what happens today, right? At some point in the last 200 years, that trend completely reversed. Now most people are born outside of cities and travel to them. Okay, now this is a map of archaeological remains. Archaeological remains, not historical. The problem with this map, and there is a big problem, is that without realizing it, you will think that this map is telling you a truth. The problem with this map is, Archaeology is insanely expensive and is not uniformly spread over the planet. Certain countries, few countries, spend money on archaeology. And when they do, they spend it on a specific project, a project that will help the person who is paying for it. In the last 50 years, nine of every $10 spent in archaeology has been spent in this area. Any uh, modern geopolitical expert want to tell me what country this area is? Take a stab, take a guess. One country is spending nine out of $10 spent on archaeology in the world. Israel, the country, the state of Israel. Why are they spending this much money? Because they are very desperate to prove that they belong in this region. They do not go looking for the remains of early Arab settlements. They've gotten a lot of complaints from archeologists because they tend to destroy them in their hunt to find remnants of Hebrew settlements. So when you see this and you think, wow, the most ancient of places is here, it may be true. But I also know that Iraq doesn't have a budget for archaeology. When we have archaeological digs in Iraq, they're paid for by European countries, especially Germany and England, people who are interested in the history, but Iraq itself doesn't have the money to fund archaeological discoveries. This country is no better. Our archaeological budget is practically non-existent. Part of the reason Americans think there are no remnants of the indigenous Native American population is because we don't go looking for them. When archaeological digs happen, and it happens usually as a, as a result of a lawsuit, archaeologists find stuff in every square foot. Give you one example from local history. Back in 1998, I think it was, a new cement plant was going to be built outside of Salem, between Salem and Roanoke, and they were going to have to remove all the topsoil to put in this plant. The government had passed a law saying if you remove the topsoil, you have to send an archaeological team in just to find out, right? Because if you take off the topsoil, no more archaeology can be done. Now the state has this law, but there's no budget. 
So they didn't pay anybody to do it. Local archaeologists out of Virginia Tech assembled a crew of volunteers with shovels and pickaxes, and they found the entire area had once been populated. Right? They found the remnants of a town. This did not make national news, because no one should be surprised. But that's it, right? Like, the moment you actually go looking for archaeological remains, you find them. When you see this map, and you think, oh, this must be the oldest place on the planet. No, it looks that old, because it's one of the few places where every square mile has actually been dug up. Okay. Here is the difficult word of the day. Cuneiform, or cuneiform. Form as in shape, kun as in wedge. And if you want me to help you remember this, I will tell you the very rude way to do it. It is not a mistake that this, in Latin, means this. And see if anyone's making the connection yet. What letter can I add to the end of here to make this a very rude word? Why does that word exist? What does that mean? It's the same word from Latin. It means wedge. What genitalia has this shape? Yeah, so cuneiform refers to this kind of shape because all of the letters have a deep part and a shallow part, and they're in this shape. So if you want to think of it in a very rude way, it'll help you remember it. That's fine. If you want to call it the uh, C word alphabet, also fine, if it helps you remember it. This alphabet is used for over 3,000 years to write multiple languages, languages that are not the same as each other, languages that are not mutually intelligible. Think of it as your Roman alphabet, your Latin alphabet, what you're writing. You know that you could use the same letters to write French, or German, or Croatian, or Maltese, Vietnamese, unrelated languages. Cuneiform is much the same. They use the same signs to write at least 15 languages that we can translate. It is the major alphabet of the ancient world. It is used for much longer than our alphabet has been around so far. The reason it survives is because it is designed to write on clay. This is designed, you have a small clay tablet, maybe this size, really. Most of the tablets are this, the size of my phone, or smaller. You have a little piece of clay, you take it up out of the ground, you pat it down, you take a reed. Again, Mesopotamia is the land of swamps, right? There's reeds everywhere. Think of it as just picking up a cattail, taking a knife, cutting off at the end, and you're ready to go. Anybody can write, because the, the materials to write are everywhere. And you sit down and you, if you're good at this, you can write as fast as you can write in this. The problem is, for you and I to write in cuneiform with a piece of paper and a pencil is actually really labor intensive because we now have to create strokes of ink when they were just push, 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 push. They're pushing in. This is not done by dragging a reed. This is done by push, 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 push. One of the oldest things that we can make sense of is something like a law, something like the Ten Commandments. We have hundreds of copies of it, so it must have been important. It's not just one text. It's a text that has been copied many, many times, and it's basically a thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal kind of document. It also has certain pieces of advice, right? Treat your children well, and they will take care of you. You should beat disrespectful children. I mean, the same old stuff that's always been around, right? So I want to make this clear, right? This is 
sitting on top of a society that has been around for thousands of years without writing. Right? Mesopotamia has been around for thousands of years, but we know nothing about these people. <clears throat> we know that they do amazing things with reeds. They build houses out of reeds. They build boats out of reeds. But this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to do archaeological work in this area, because clay survives, reeds not so much. Thousands of years of societies, kings and queens, gods, religions, not recorded. It is recorded in proto-writing, but again, I mentioned before, proto-writing is problematic. It cannot be translated. It's mostly numbers and individual signs. It's the, like, imagine if the only writing that survived from today was a pile of receipts from like Kroger or Lowe's or Walmart. Like, yeah, that's writing. Is it gonna tell you anything? You could try. Cuneiform existed as proto-writing for about 5,000 years. It was a very successful proto-writing system. And only 5,000 years ago did someone say, you know what you could do with this? You could write down thoughts. You can make treaties. You could write down hymns and praise to God. But here's the kicker. You may not realize this, but many languages of the world are related to each other. Right? We could talk about language families. You might have learned in high school about the Romance languages, this idea that, yeah, if you're a native speaker of Italian, you can pick up Spanish pretty easily. Portuguese with a little bit of work, even Romanian if you try hard enough. German, you're told, is kind of related to Dutch and Norwegian and Swedish and even English. There are larger language families, families right? We talk about the, um, the Bantu language family, like more than half of Africa speaks some language related to Bantu, the other half some language related to Arabic. Or even larger, right? Indo-European, where basically almost every language in Europe, plus many in the Middle East, including Persian and Hindi in India, part of a large language family. Sumerian, from the best we can tell, unrelated to all of them. This is why it took so long to translate. People saw these signs and they said, this doesn't look or sound or resemble anything that survives. <clears throat> okay, question number two. Think of one way that a modern map a map like on your phone becomes wrong, inaccurate. What is a way where you can be looking at your phone and it can lead you astray? It actually shows a wrong thing, an inaccurate thing. Not just you losing your signal. The map is there and it's just wrong. Anyone care to share? I should get my handy dandy cheat sheet here. <clears throat> All right, X, what you got? Oh, so the mapper just screwed up. Like there was a forest, but it's over there, not where he said it was, or she said it was. Okay. Another way a map can become wrong, like it was right and now it's wrong, Madison. The compass. That's what you said, the compass is wrong, right? So like, this says it's to the east, but really it's to the north or something like that. Okay. That's <laughs> the mask, man. Yeah, it could be wrong when you get it, as in maybe there was a forest there and now the forest is gone. What is a part of the physical world that changed, right? So think of like a landslide, right? Half of a mountain is now a beach. Do rivers move? 
I mean, that's an honest question. Do rivers change position? Do they change position over the course of a single human lifetime? Depends on the river. Right, the Roanoke River, it's going through some pretty rocky terrain. The, the course of the Roanoke River hasn't changed so much in a human lifetime. But over three human lifetimes, noticeably, right? You can look at maps of Virginia from 200 years ago. Look at the James River. Look at any of the major rivers. Like They are not always where people say they are. The world is moving. Mountains are getting higher or lower. Forests grow up. Forests are cut down. Rivers move. Deserts grow. Deserts shrink. So here is a typical map of ancient Mesopotamia. I pulled this out of a textbook, a normal high school textbook. This is the probably the... It angers me more than it should, right? The problem with this map, and how stupid it is, is they have taken a modern map of Iraq, where the modern courses of the rivers are in the modern coastline. And this doesn't say modern Iraq and locations in ancient Mesopotamia. This map says ancient Mesopotamia. And so you're going to wonder, boy, it's weird. Not a single one of these cities is on a river. They're just out there in the middle of the desert. I guess times were different then. Right? You'll have people see this map, and I've heard this myself. Teachers will say, in those times it was different. It was wetter. The climate has changed. Sure, the climate has changed. But more importantly, these rivers were in different places. Not only that, 10,000 years ago, this was one river. Over time, the river has split. Sometimes there have been three, sometimes two, sometimes one. But a map isn't going to tell you this. We have this idea, if you've heard this expression before, the fertile crescent, because it makes this shape, right? We can go from Egypt up to the Levant, down to Mesopotamia. It is a very problematic expression. People, <coughs> people hear the word fertile, and they think, oh, it must be green. These must be like the best possible place to grow crops. It's all desert. It was all desert 5,000 years ago. Sorry. What makes this fertile? The rivers. Irrigation. It doesn't rain. I guess the louder I talk, the harder this gets. <coughs> okay. It's desert is the main point I want to give to you. And these maps don't really make that point as clear as they could. Okay, so. Sometime in the ancient past, before history, the Persian Gulf was dry. During the last glacial maximum, when the ice ages are, you know, there's glaciers all over the place, there is no ocean where there is ocean now in the Persian Gulf. There are people living here. This is dry land. The same rivers that come here go through here. This is extremely fertile land. Ask me, how much archaeological discovery has been done here. Zero. Why? Because it's the Persian Gulf. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Iran. If there is a more militarized body of water on the planet, I do not know it. The only thing this body of water matters for is to move the gas in your car from these oil fields out through here. It is the most dangerous militarized body of water. And probably, if you want to find the historical, like, realistic evidence of, like, a Noah. It's here. Because at some point in the past, this flooded. And it probably was not gradual. It was probably very fast and catastrophic. And the people who lived there thought the entire world had just disappeared. 
The ancient cities of Mesopotamia, all of them, were built on water. Why? Because all of them built their homes out of reeds. Reeds do not grow in the desert. Reeds grow along rivers and in marshlands, in the swamps. Now I say swamp, don't imagine a cypress swamp. I'm not talking about like down in the holler with like, you know, Spanish moss and big trees. These are not swamps like that. Desert swamps are quite different. Now there are dangerous animals there, but again, it's, it's still the desert. It's still quite dry. So it's not as unpleasant as you might imagine. Like, wow, all these people living in swamps. Don't think of like Kentucky or like whatever. It's, that's not what I'm talking about. So our best guess as to where these rivers had changed and where the coast used to be helps us make a lot more sense. So again, the, the, the Mesopotamia, the land between these two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, used to be a single river. And over time, the rivers divided. And as this happened, the ancient cities that had been here in the middle, they're now in the desert. They make no sense. And people say this all the time. When we have the Iraq wars, our soldiers will be over there visiting the ruins and think like, man, this is so weird. Why are these massive cities where tens of thousands of people lived, why are they in the middle of nowhere? Because we can't, it's very difficult for you or I to visualize how short our life is and how much the world around us is changing. It's just not a thing that human beings naturally excel at. And yet this is something that scientists have known about for a long time. Like this happens all over the place. This is not unique to ancient Mesopotamia. And all of the oldest cities confirm this. Like they're very clearly port cities, river cities. But now they're in the middle of the desert. It's not because of climate change in the sense of it used to be very wet and now it's very dry. Sure, maybe it was a little wetter. But more importantly, the city was on a river. Okay. This is one of the oldest tablets we have written in Sumerian. And it tells essentially the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. This is roughly 1,500 years older than the Bible. It's from ancient Sumeria. It is written on a, on a tablet. Uh, that right there fits in my hand. I know it looks big when you see it up there. There's no, nothing for reference, right? But these are, by nature, most of these are meant to be held in the hand and carried around. As far as we can tell, a very small number of people could read and write, but those who could read and write read and wrote a lot. It, was a very, it seems to be a specialized job, but the fact of the matter is we can't really tell. The main way we judge is there are experts in Sumerian who actually can kind of, they do handwriting analysis to try to figure out like, you know, the, the way that you can tell that this person wrote this or that person wrote that, they do it with this. And what they find is there's a lot of things written in the same hand. Not the same person always, but the point is there isn't the variety of handwriting that you would expect if many people could read and write. They also, there are texts that survive that describe the schools that the scribes went to. They don't sound like, they don't sound like pleasant places. Okay, number three. This is a fun one. What is something that belongs to you or your family that you think could survive 1,000 years if, it were, if I took it and I buried it in a hole today? Something that you or your family owns that you think if I took it and buried it. I don't mean a house, I mean something small. I don't, ideally something smaller than your car, but that's the question too. You could say, oh, the car, we could bury the car. That's probably survive. 
Okay. A thousand. If you want to call it five thousand. Sorry? Question two, I already forgot, was a way that maps can be wrong. A way that maps can be wrong. Anybody care to share here? I mean, again, I'm not going to tell you right or wrong. I don't know. It's, just a, it's a thing to think about. Like, how many of the things that you own that you probably realize there's no, ch there's no chance that this is going to survive? Like, is this going to survive a thousand years in the dirt? I don't think so. It might. We'll have to wait a thousand years and find out how many cell phones are in the, in the, in the dirt. People often think of metal as something that lasts forever. Some metals do. Many do not. I'll give you an example. People think of like, well, what about swords and like spears and shields and chains and all these things? Iron rusts. And inside of 300 years, it rusts completely. Right? All of this iron age that you hear about all the time, like, oh, the ancient Romans, they used iron and even like a very primitive kind of steel. We only know about it because people tell us. None of it survives. Viking swords, right? If you find one, if there's anything left, it's a hilt and a pattern of rust stain. That's not that long ago, you know, in terms of ancient history. I don't know what's going to survive from our time, but I bet it's not as much as we think. So where possible, historians always use archaeological data. We don't pay for it, but we try to make use of it. The problem is archaeology is insanely expensive because it deals with real estate, right? You're dealing with property. Someone owns this land and they want to do something with it and you're saying, everybody stop, I'm looking for dead people. History, in comparison, relatively cheap. Also, it's a very different kind of field, right? Historians almost always work alone. One man or woman goes to a place to find some documents, and they sit there for a few months. They read those documents, and they come out, and they say something. Archaeology is a team sport. There might be one or two doctors at the head, five or six graduate students under them, and then something like 10 to 100 Call them volunteers, sometimes they're paid, the people who actually hold the shovels. Not only that, archaeology has changed drastically just in the last 50 years. Where now modern archaeologists are disgusted at what archaeologists did 100 years ago. More destroying than preserving. So the, the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber is a difficult question to answer. The more difficult question to answer is, what even survives? What survives from the past? People think about Pompeii. I don't know if how much you know about Pompeii. It's a thing that I had to learn about in high school. Pompeii, right? This very famous city of ancient Rome, destroyed in a single afternoon when it is buried deep in volcanic ash. When it was dug up in the 20th century, history was rewritten 100%. Because before that point, Almost nothing physically survived from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was important. People thought they knew about it. But in discovering Pompeii, historians and archaeologists realized, wow, okay, Rome was much dirtier, much, look, more, much more like modern cities, and apparently absolutely obsessed with prostitution and sex. And Pompeii was not, a, was not a resort town. You can't say, oh, well, they just buried Las Vegas. No. It was a typical Roman city that had almost as many brothels as it had homes. Now, 
when I say prostitution, this doesn't, it's not like modern prostitution, right? These were also religious sites because various gods were worshipped through sexy times. And like, why did we let that go? I don't know. But uh, the point is, this understanding of ancient Rome had not been preserved in the writing. Prior to this, people thought of Rome in a much higher-minded way. Right? They think of Julius Caesar and his family and like, well, these, these are great leaders. They must be very moral. They, they just look like our great leaders. They do what we do. Well, what if you cannot find a single wall in Pompeii without a big penis drawn on it? What does that mean? Pompeii is a once-in-a-millennia discovery, unfortunately. It's the perfect time capsule. Most things that survive, it's, there's not an accident. They are actively being preserved by someone, usually someone with a lot of money and a lot of power. When you see a corporation or a government or an association spend money on a statue, you might think, well, that's just dumb, and they're just doing that to make themselves look good. And that might be true, too. But the fact of the matter is, most statues survive. We have more statues from the ancient Roman Empire than almost anything else from that period. Imagine if the only thing that people will know about the United States in 1,000 or 2,000 years are the statues that we built. That's not just possible, that's, that's likely. Other things that survive, survive because they're useful and they keep on getting used. The aqueducts, right? The, the infrastructure of the Roman Empire, the roads. But because they are being used, they're not that well preserved. Let me make this clear. It's the ship of Theseus problem. I don't know if you're familiar with philosophy, the ship of Theseus is this classic problem of, imagine Theseus is going off on his you know, ancient Greek adventure as he leaves in a ship, comes back in five years. When he comes back, they've done all sorts of repairs over their time, and throughout that trip, they've replaced the sails, they've replaced the hull, they've replaced the oars, piece by piece by piece. Ship comes back, not a single piece of wood or cloth is the same. Is it the same ship? It's a philosophical question, right? Because the thing is, you are a ship of Theseus. Right? How many of your cells date back to the time of your conception? Try not to think about it too much. I'm saying it's a ship of Theseus problem. So if I look at Roman roads or Roman aqueducts, because they're used, they're replaced, they're repaired. So if I go to Segovia in Spain and see this beautiful aqueduct, and I can ask the question, how much of this aqueduct actually dates back to Rome? Hard to say. It was useful. It was providing water to the city for 2,000 years, constantly being repaired. Some things do miraculously survive, though. These are always the most interesting finds, the thing that no one wanted to survive, but it did anyway. Like the brothels of Pompeii. Sometimes, sometimes things are buried, other times, well, chaos happens and a landslide covers them or volcanic ash. Because of this, archaeology and history has long focused on large, permanent buildings, churches, castles, palaces. That isn't because they're the most important places necessarily. It's because they preserve things. They lock things up. They put them in stone. It is the natural bias of archaeology and history. So, in general, what survives? Nothing organic. Here again, Utsi is amazing, right? In order for something organic to survive, you have to drop it in a glacier and then leave it there. Iron, 
iron does not survive. Unless you can keep it in a, in a place without air, right? Iron breaks down, and I don't just mean it turns orange. In your lifetime, iron will turn orange. In 200 years, it will, it will be gone. Iron will eventually just evaporate entirely. Many iron tools that we think of as Roman are replacements, things that have been fixed over time. So maybe the tool is old, the handle is old, because wood will actually last longer than iron if it's well-preserved, if it's oiled and kept up. That wooden handle will last longer than the iron bar it's attached to. Now, of course, there's also the fact that many things that are in the process of being destroyed break up into small pieces. So we have basically the world's most terrifying puzzle. The ceramic jar. It was once three feet tall, this beautiful thing, and now it's in 10,000 pieces. Whose job is it to put it back together? Okay, number four. How or what do you know associated with the word Babylon? It's okay if the answer is nothing, but I say the word Babylon, what do you know about it? How do you know about it? Just, you know, it doesn't have to be much. I want to tell you about a place in Iran called Behistun. Behistun is important for us, and it's, I'm telling you about it because I'm making an assumption, an assumption that's maybe dangerous, that sometime in your past, you had to learn about the Rosetta Stone. I'm gonna guess this is a thing that you may have like seen bolded in some social studies textbook in the past, and maybe that's wrong. Anybody remember what the Rosetta Stone was or what it did and care to try to share through your mask? Rosetta Stone, go, anybody. Okay, show of hands, who's heard of the Rosetta Stone before? Even though they, they can't tell me anything about it, this is a thing they've heard of. Okay, that's more than half, that's good. Okay, the Rosetta Stone, the reason you're supposed to learn about it is that it made possible the translation and reading of Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, Egyptian hieroglyphics, I haven't talked about at all, right? I, I think of it as we, we, we consider as way more important than it was. Because unlike cuneiform, hieroglyphics was only used to write one language. It did not get exported. No one else wanted to use it. It's incredibly complicated. It's only used to write Egyptian. Why did anyone want to translate ancient hieroglyphs so badly? Because they were convinced in the 1800s it will prove the truth of the Bible, right? So they're gonna, we're gonna read all this stuff that's on the pyramid walls and we're gonna find out about the Hebrews building the pyramids. And the Rosetta Stone was found and it's great because it has ancient Greek on it and also hieroglyphics. So they kind of do a one-to-one, -one. I'm making it sound very simple, it's not. They translate the hieroglyphics. So we have all of this text now that we can translate. And almost all of it is religious in nature, about Egyptian gods and the building of temples for them. There are some texts about pyramids being built, and they make it very clear. There are no Hebrews anywhere around. They're never mentioned. The pyramids were built by professional masons. Right? There are diary entries of the quarry worker saying, today I shipped this many blocks. The day before I shipped that many blocks, they were accepted at this pace, and I was paid for them. It's incredibly boring in day to day. It's amazing, the pyramids are amazing, but they really were built by just a powerful bureaucratic state. There's no mention of slavery at all. I mention this because the drive to translate hieroglyphics might strike your modern ear as, why, why did they care so much? Because they wanted to find something out, and when they didn't find it out, Everything else is just sort of thrown by the wayside. Cuneiform is much the same. They find this everywhere. They have millions of clay tablets in the museums of the world. Maybe there's something locked in there, something we can find. When it is translated, it does more to corroborate certain books of the Bible 
than the hieroglyphics ever could because this is written in the places and at the same times as the ancient Hebrews, as we'll be sharing later in, in class. So how did this specific Rosetta Stone, it's not a Rosetta Stone, but I call it that because it's written in a bunch of texts and one of them is cuneiform. How did it survive? Think of it as the ancient Persian version of Mount Rushmore. It's carved into the face of a mountain. There was an earlier carving down here that has since been covered and recovered. It, it is very clear from the outset here that the original cuneiform text has been chiseled off and replaced with more recent text, and that's happened two or three times. Great. That one, though, was untouched. That's the lesson, right? You want something to be preserved? Make it hard to get to. So a Mr. Henry Rawlinson, one of these aristocratic European fellows who is famously wealthy, travels to ancient Iran, as it were, the what is still, still then Persia, and copies it out. And yeah, from there we can now read Babylonian texts. One of his colleagues is the first person to translate that Gilgamesh tablet about the flood. And we're told that when he read it, he dropped it and it very nearly shattered. He, because at that point, Noah and the flood were considered to be the backbone of like biblical mythology. Having then found this Babylonian text that is 2,000 years older than the Bible, talking about the flood was kind of a shock. Now again, that doesn't prove that the flood happened, but it certainly suggests that maybe it is a historical memory of, of something. Okay. So here's a picture from the last Iraq war. And the, uh, the newspaper text, which is copied into Wikipedia is, U.S. soldiers from the 7th Fires Brigade make their way up the ziggurat of Ur, near contingency operating base Adder. Ziggurat was constructed as a place of worship in the 21st century BC. Today, after more than 4,000 years, one of the most well-preserved structures of the Neo-Sumerian city of Ur. This is the same kind of crap that we see over and over and over again. People see this and they think, wow, that, what a miraculous piece of preservation. How does this survive? Well, it, it didn't survive by accident. That was entirely dug out of the sand and then re-proportioned, we want to say, like it's actually actively being preserved by the Iraqi government. Saddam Hussein did more to preserve this site. I'm not saying he's a good guy, right? Famous tyrants are also, every single one of them, dedicated to the history of their country. Because most of them are nationalists, right? They have this idea that our country is special, our country's history must be preserved. And even though these are the same people that we think we should go to war with because we have to protect their people from tyranny, tyrants are really, really good for archeology, span sad to say. Another example, here's the city of Babylon. This is a picture taken from an airplane in the 1930s. This is during the time when it is actively being excavated. There is a massive German team. I say Germans in the 1930s. They can't want to draw any collections. Who's paying for this? Nazis. Yeah, right? If you ever, I don't know if you had to watch the Indiana Jones movies growing up. You ever notice how he's always fighting Nazis in the 1930s? Because the Nazis spent billions of dollars on archaeology because they were looking for historical evidence of the Aryan super race. So here they are trying to dig out the ruins of Babylon, almost entirely reburied now. Because who's got money for that? It's in the desert. It's no longer by the river. If you're not actively digging it out, it just gets buried again. When the Nazis got done digging up the walls of Babylon, they lifted them up brick by brick and shipped them to Berlin, which is where they are now. It's where they've been since the 1930s. You see this beautiful black and white picture, and you have no idea what you are seeing here looks like this. It pops out of the desert. Beautiful blue lapis lazuli tiles. Each one of these tiles, if you were able to pry the stones off of it, would be worth thousands of dollars today. This is a precious gemstone mined in Afghanistan, and they used it to build the walls. Granted, they're mud bricks covered with lapis lazuli, but that is bonkers. And it's, yeah, don't worry, Saddam Hussein built a, a replica. So if you want to go to the, the walls of Babylon now, he, it's half scale and it's just blue paint 
but yeah, if you think Iraq is getting the walls back, you've got another thing coming, guys. Grave robbing is serious business. Question number five, and this is the last one. Why or how, however you want to think about this, were horses so important before 1900, before cars? What is the big deal about horses? In your own words. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. You're using your own brain. Why are horses such a big deal? If you want to think of it as before cars, before electricity, before telephones, before steamships, what's the big deal with horses? As a second part to that question, you don't have to answer this one on the card, but thinking about that, the question I would ask you then is, is it possible for a modern person living in 2020 to truly, in their bones, understand what the horse represented before the modern era? Now they're pets, very expensive pets, not on your lap, but they are the playground of people of means. Right? Like a person does, you can go to a shelter and get a dog. A person does not just go pick up a horse. But at some point in the past, horses were, well, they definitely outnumbered people. So in ancient Sumeria, there were no horses. Horses are domesticated right around the time that ancient Sumeria, that we can write about, comes into being. What they have are donkeys and what we'll call war wagons. They're pictured on this uh, so-called standard of Ur. You'll be reading more about it in the quiz. The standard of Ur is this kind of mysterious relic. It's also made out of that blue lapis lazuli material. Again, mined in Afghanistan. This is not a wagon you're gonna ride on if you're in a hurry. It's pulled by donkeys. It probably weighs half a ton. It maybe goes one mile an hour. You are not riding on it to get somewhere in a hurry. We call them war wagons, but this is not the cavalry. This is not something that's used in the battle, but you can, you can carry stuff with it. Think of it like, it's not the tank, it's the semi-truck that drops the food off for the soldiers at the base. You're not riding this thing into war, unless you imagine the war going at this pace. Which is not very exciting. Drawn by donkeys. There are no horses, not in Samaria. Very heavy wheels, made out of ma massive blocks of wood. The most expensive piece of this cart are these wooden wheels, and they are ridiculously heavy. Carrying quivers of spears, and all of this should lead to the question is, well, wait a minute, when I think of the ancient world, if I see a movie set in Rome or like ancient Israel, people got horses, and they're riding chariots around. Where does this come from? It comes from Central Asia. The seas of grass, north of Iran, north of Turkey, Think of the Mongols, think of the Huns. These are the people who first domesticate the horse and they first build the chariots and they're speaking a language that is related to the language that I'm speaking to you now. The Indo-European languages are the languages spread by the horse. I don't care if we're talking about Hindi in India or Persian in Iran or Greek or Hittite or Anatolian or French or German or English. Ours is the language of the horse people. Doesn't mean that we are descended from them necessarily because languages are not related to blood necessarily. War wagons and donkeys are no match for them. Chariots and horses allow a person to go not one mile an hour, but 30. For the first time, the human race can go more than five miles an hour. Think of it this way and largely because they figured out a way to make a wheel with spokes, right? Those little spindly pieces of wood that are very light and yet very strong. There's a book that in previous classes I had my students read, but so actually I need to take this out. That'll take, be taken out. You're not reading it in this class, but if you're interested in it, I'll leave it up there. It's Horse of the Wheel and Language, very interesting book. I just wanna make this clear to you that 2000, BC is when domestication of the horses began, way up here in what is now southern Russia. By the time we get to the ancient Sumerians, 
Well, they're, they're, they still don't have the horses, right? And it's 1500 BC. The Hittites are the ones who have brought them in. Another way to think of this is the ancient Greeks had only just got them when we hear about the ancient Greeks in the next class. Samaria, Ur, and Babylon, they were not built with horses. The Egyptian pyramids were not built with horses. Had they been, people would be a lot less surprised. That's one of the things people always mention about the pyramids. Oh, can you imagine? This had to be built with just their backs, just human muscle. Well, why is that? Do horses not survive in Egypt? Well, sure they do. They just didn't exist yet. This is also a chance for me to say a little bit about chariots. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, why were chariots ever a thing, and why are they not a thing now? The chariot, think of it as this little wagon, right? It's pulled behind by the horse. Why don't you just ride the horse? <laughs> what are you achieving by sitting in this rickety little wagon? Well, the answer is, our modern horses today do not help us understand what horses look like 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. The original domesticated horses were much closer to wild horses, which are about the size of donkeys. Really fast, but tiny. To the point where, yes, you could put a child on its back, but a grown adult human being, it's going to hurt it. You'll, you'll break its back. But it's strong and it's fast. So if I rig up some way to let it pull me, it'll pull me along at a good clip. Only over time are horses bred for size and speed and strength. So that when you get to the ancient Greeks, Chariots are now only used as a form of like, you know, ancient NASCAR. We have chariot races, but in battles, it's people sitting on the backs of horses. And that's because the horses themselves have actually gotten bigger and stronger.